if you go into the Pantheon, it's actually not an experience which is just visual. It's also an experience which, in terms of the sound of the building, the, the feeling of the heat or the coolness of the building as you come in from the outside, and also an awareness of the space of the building that you're next to people or it's empty. I think fundamentally that the, uh, the, the imaginative technique is, is not really any different. Whether, um, whether one is talking about creating contemporary architecture or um, understanding um, an archaeological site or a, an ancient building. Welcome to Classics Confidential. This week we're talking about the sensors. The sensory approach to the city is where we look at, we quite often look at just the visual and we think about the buildings and what they look like, but the, the senses allows us to think about how you experience heat, cold, how you experience sound, and also the smells of the city. That's Professor Ray Lawrence from the University of Kent. Um, in terms of what we gain, we gain, gain a number of things because we start sort of stepping out away from plans and we start looking and thinking of what it feels like to be in a city, just as what, how you would feel on your way to work or in a restaurant. Of course, even just in ancient Rome, exactly how you sensed your environment would depend quite a lot on who you were and on factors like how old you were. If, if we're to think of the the senses of children through to the senses of the very old. We can immediately identify with the very old that they're going to become deaf, they're going to become blind, they're going to lose their teeth. So a lot of the sensory information will be lost. With the very young, you can think of them learning the sounds and smells of the city and associating some smells with different places, which sticks in your memory forever, just as we would say, go into a certain building and that would be associated with a smell from childhood. Now there's a word that you hear an awful lot when you're reading about archaeology and the sensors and that's multisensory. Dr Eleanor Betts from the Open University explains why this term is so useful. Even if you sort of focus in on, on one at a time, um, so you know, the, the really obvious one is, is smell. Smell and taste are absolutely interlinked and even Lefebvre when he um, writes out different sensations and, and the architecture of enjoyment that came out recently. He separates out taste and smell but he, but he also just makes that point that they're, they're very very closely interlinked and you can't really do one without the other. The fun thing that he pulls out is just the different numbers of haptic sensations so again I think we have to get well beyond touch as a single entity and thinking okay our, you know skin is the largest organ of the body and <laughs> it operates in different different ways and even even thinking about sound we think that's a very discrete sensory mechanism it's a way of interpreting a landscape and environment sound is directional so it's very much again connected to the sort of haptic physical space and you know, sound and movement operate very closely closely together and you can't really separate one from from the other and even in roman literature the silence was stillness so it was not moving rather than you know, the absence of sound someone who's done a lot of work on sound in the ancient city is jeff feach from the university of kent Jeff used to be a sound engineer. He's moved into archaeology now, but he still uses sound as a tool to understand the ancient built environments. Yeah, so for me, the, the sensory approach is actually a way of understanding um, what often is seen as very mundane and practical um, construction. Um, so the Ostia is filled with brick-faced concrete 
Um, and the sensory approach actually lets me, and, and in particular it's the acoustics, um, it lets me understand and gives us an insight into choices that are made that we don't always see. So it's not simply um, that they built in the same manner, it's that the, um, the construction technique with the size of the space and with things that are happening in that space, um, those are all brought together in, in, in my kind of sensory approach and my acoustic analysis of it. Um, so it really gives us a, a clue into things that we don't usually see. We only see architecture in terms of big changes um, and rebuilding, but we can start to, to tease out smaller changes um, in the way the Romans understood the space and the way they inter interacted and used it. Um, and that's kind of what the, the sensory approach gives me um, a, a nice um, and really clear means of kind of um, talking about these in between times and periods when um, the city doesn't seem to change, but it in fact is kind of going through different changes. Before we get a case study from Jeff, let's hear from Professor Ben Jacks, who's an architect and professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Ben's done a lot of thinking about the relationship between the environment and the senses. I got interested in this because um, I uh, once hiked the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. And... Um, in that experience for six months, I had you know a full sensory experience, not unlike the kind of sensory experience I had as a child. And uh, at the same time, I um, realized that um, a lot of people practicing architecture were thinking of it in visual terms. And so when I started doing um, scholarship on walking, I uh, I began by thinking about the ways in which walking can be used as a technique of design, the ways in which a designer can engage in the landscape and uh, begin to sort out how the landscape is perceived and ordered at the same time. Um, and uh, I came up with uh, four practices, sighting, reading, measuring, and merging. And um, I've continued to think about sighting, reading, and measuring, and merging, and I haven't found a strong need to add, say, a, a fifth category. But I've begun to realize that uh, multisensory experience is really the thing that's occurring when one is walking. And... Um, multi-sensory experience is uh, the gateway to understanding the atmosphere of a place and atmosphere is a it's it's not a concept exactly it's um, it's really that uh, first impression feeling that we have of a particular place and I'm interested in the people who have pursued as a philosophy as an aesthetic category um, atmosphere and so my work in multi-sensory perception is a way of uh, I think expanding uh, for designers again um, what um, what atmosphere is all about 
I worry a little bit that uh, we think we know what atmosphere is, and so therefore we'll we'll miss the uh, the the power of it um, to be something that uh, students can learn from in, in design. It's it's actually quite precise uh, if you if you spend time thinking about about atmosphere, and so I, I'm trying to. Um, get at that precision by taking apart uh, the senses and then and then putting them back together in, in one in one whole experience. Atmosphere and the gut reaction, the feeling that you get about a place or a landscape. These are elusive concepts, but they're enormously important for archaeologists too. Let's go back to Jeff, who spent a lot of time studying the atmosphere in Yep, you guessed it, baths. Bath complexes I, I find to be really interesting. We can chart the way people move through the different um, rooms for bathing and, and going from warm rooms to hotter rooms to cold rooms. Um, but then we can also think about the way um, the shape and size of the space changes the experience um, of sound and noise. Um, so you get at one end these large open halls that are um, usually uh, have marble, um, marble revetment and marble um, walls, and that reflects a lot of the sound. And so they, they they're experienced as bigger than their actual dimensions. Um, but then as you move into these heated and warmer rooms, um, the room becomes insulated, and so it starts to block out outside noise that isn't quite possible in the large um, space of some of the um, cold rooms. Uh, and so as you get further and further along, the dimensions enclose and you, you hear less of the outside noise um, due to the, the heating system that they used. It's called a hypocost, but it insulates the inner space um, and so it blocks out some of the outside noise. Um, and so we can also think about the way um, a bath complex could be used for social interaction in, in these ways of, of big, noisy, um, kind of loud spaces at cooler um, temperatures to where it feels much more intimate um, and it's enclosed and encapsulated in a, in a heated um, kind of sauna-like room um, and how those experiences within one building um, kind of shape the way it's used and what potentially you could um, you could actually do when having a conversation with someone as they move through um, move through the different rooms. Now listening to Jeff makes me wonder about the Roman builders. Did ancient architects think as much about the sensory effects of their structures as contemporary architects like Professor Ben Jacks? In some cases it does seem like the answer was yes. Catherine Hogarth is a PhD student at the University of Kent and she's working on the multi-sensory qualities of Roman bridges. And the bridges I particularly focus on are the ones within the urban limits of the city of Rome itself. So um, they all cross the Tiber um, from the northern end of Rome at the Pons Milvius down to the Pons Proby, which is pretty much the end of the wall, uh, the Aurelian Wall district. And when you hear Catherine talk about her Roman bridges, it really does change the way that you think about them. The problem with 
bridges or Roman bridges particularly is they are studied primarily from an architectural and engineering perspective. There was a um, 2001 monograph by um, the Museum of London in which they referred to them as the Cinderella of urban studies <laughs> um, because they really are not appreciated for the complexity and their agency and their sensory um, effect on people and people and how people move they're perceived as roads or mere functional structures to get you from A to B which they do that is their primary focus but that is not what bridges are all about and certainly not in the Roman world. Now part of what Catherine's been doing is uncovering the symbolic qualities of the materials that bridges were made from. Take for example there's two bridges in Rome there is a stone bridge called the Ponte Emiliana and there is a wooden bridge, entirely wood, called the Ponsoblicius. Now, if you look at these two bridges, people have said, well, why did they leave one, the wooden bridge, alongside the stone bridge? Why would you do that? And this is a bridge they continually rebuilt. It got knocked down a lot. Um, and people have said, well, you know, oh well, it was probably just there, <laughs> essentially. Um, but if you look at the material of the bridge and you actually consider the sensory aspect of this, now bridges connect, they connect landscapes. So rather than just uh, a structure running from one end to the other, Heidegger said they gather the landscape and that is exactly what they do. They gather the memories of both banks together along with the Tiber, which is running beneath. Um, and they connect them together into this experience. So. When you cross a bridge, you remember you're, you're moving from one side, it's a very liminal journey or transition, um, and you're walking into a different environment. Now, the environment you're walking into and the actual uh, material of the bridge can inform how you, how you perceive that journey. So on the Sublicius, it's wood, and it represents an ancient time in Rome. It, it represents... Uh, the land of the heroes it, it represents foundation myths so Romus and Remus uh, Horatius protecting Rome from the bridge so it's not just a bridge when they cross that bridge it's a reflection of ancient Rome it's a collective memory um, repository I suppose and into the landscape of the Forum Boarium which reinforces that, that journey they going into an area of, of Etruscan mythology, of the kings, everything. So that's a really important reminder that even when we can physically get our own hands on the materials of Roman sculpture and architecture, it doesn't mean we can necessarily feel what they felt. And this balance between biological continuity and cultural specificity of sensory experience is one of the most knotty theoretical problems in the field. Here's Dr. Eleanor Betts again. So my interest in taking a sensory approach really comes from phenomenology. So I read Chris Tilley's Phenomenology of Landscape as, as an undergrad, and that's very landscape-based. It's been quite highly criticised, well, at the time and, you know, and, and since, you know, this sort of image of the lone man striding through the landscape as if everything's brand new and nobody's ever experienced <laughs> the the textures and the wind and heard the birds and, in that landscape before. But there's still some really important fundamental principles in there. And, you know, again, it's taken the best part of 20 years, really, for that to come back around 
and we sort of manipulated into sensory studies or sensory archaeologies. Um, and again, you know, do we pluralise or not? There's, it's, a, it's a real sort of discussion point still. Um, so I started off working in an Iron Age italic sacred landscape and trying to understand how votive deposit sites were, were chosen, how later monumentalised sanctuary sites were chosen and what the relationship is there between religious belief and the ritual and the, the landscape itself and particular elements in the landscape and very much think about how the human body in that landscape experiences the space and then how that constructs the culture that leads to the to the ritual and religious practice so I think it's really important to keep that sort of trilectic between the human body objects and landscape place space and you know again that needs teasing out a little bit and to be very aware that all of these things have agency so a human agency is been knocking around for a long time in archaeology but object agency again surprisingly is only really just becoming quite a popular area of research um, and equally landscape and architectural agency as well so buildings impact on how we operate in space how we react to that space and by adding in all of the senses to, to those interactions we just get some of the nuances and it helps us find the gaps and give us a better understanding of how people in the past were using those spaces and places and objects um, and interacting with, with each other while still retaining that awareness of the cultural specificity of the senses and how our modern bodies are not, you know, not falling into the, the trap that, that Chris Tilly was criticised for by sort of saying if we put ourselves back into those landscapes that we can appreciate what was going on in the past in exactly the same way as the people who were, were living in them and using them at the time, which, which we can't do. And that's one of the challenges, but one of the exciting aspects of sensory studies. That's a really important warning. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't use the sensory approach to understand people in the past better or empathise with them. Professor Ben Jacks. There, there's a sort of humanising of experience. Um, which is, and I don't think it's ahistorical exactly. I think, but I think it's a humanizing of experience. And I, I actually, um, I, I, I sort of liken it to the situation that we have in the world where we need to put ourselves in a better position of talking with the other and not constantly, um, you know, um, separating. Uh, ourselves from from one another as the other. So yeah, I, I don't. I I think fundamentally that the uh, the the imaginative technique is is not really any different. Whether um, whether one is talking about creating contemporary architecture or um, understanding um, an archaeological site or a, an ancient building. Um, now, obviously, there are there are distinct differences. I mean, there are questions of evidence in in history and archaeology that are primary. Um, but uh, but in terms of the senses, um, and in terms of imagination, I don't think it's it's really all that different. So that's a very positive note to end on. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this new audio edition of Classics Confidential. This episode was produced and presented by me, Jessica Hughes, and featured in order of appearance, Ray Lawrence, Ben Jacks, Eleanor Betts, Jeff Beach, and Catherine Hogarth. Thanks very much for listening, and do come over and join the debate on Twitter with the hashtag 
Classics Confide.